Listen, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad uh, you're with us today. Our staff's been looking forward to this. And uh, I don't think it's an accident that we are finishing up our unstoppable series on the day when we are opening our church back up. And uh, the reason is today we're going to talk about uh, the unstoppable mission that God has given us as the people of God. And so I'm going to get you to grab your Bibles, if you would, go to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. Just hold your spot there. We'll get there in just a few minutes. Um, One of the things that I think is important that we as a church do is always remember the mission that God has given us, to remember the mission. Uh, I think a lot of times churches have what we call mission drift, where they forget why they're here and what they exist for, and all of a sudden they veer off, and you go, and what happened? And I always describe it like this. I said, sometimes the mission of the church looks like the grocery cart when a husband goes to buy groceries when there's no grocery lists. You know what I'm talking about? And uh, like Adrian won't let me go buy groceries out of the list because I'm told to get what's on the list, don't get anything else, because I could go come home with a truck full of groceries, but not enough food to cook dinner, right? You know what I'm talking about? And so uh, a lot of churches look like this. We're busy and we got programs and all kinds of activities, and we're just kind of uh, running here and there. But the truth is, we really have forgotten the mission. And I, I want New Beginnings to always protect the mission. So let me just kind of summarize the mission before we jump into the text that we're going to be in. Really, the mission of the church is rooted in two primary locations. There's the Great Commission. That's Matthew 28, where Jesus says, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So we have this commission to go and make disciples, to proclaim the message of the gospel. To proclaim the message of the gospel. This is what we're called to do. So what is the message of the gospel? Well, it's the, it's the very thing we looked at in week one where we see that Jesus starts the church. That the, the, the gospel is simply this. It's the proclamation that Jesus is the Christ. He is the son of the living God. That he died on the cross for our sins, resurrected, so that in him we might be forgiven and have new life. That's the message that we proclaim. That's the message of the church. And the mission of the church is very simple. It's to advance the message of the church. So if anybody asks, you say, what is the church all about? Well, the church is about a message. It's the gospel. And the mission is about advancing the message, which is the gospel. So we are a gospel people. But the second passage that I think is key in understanding the mission is what we call the great commandments. You've got the great commission. Then you've got the great commandment. Matthew 22, Jesus is asked a question. What is the greatest commandment that God has for us? And what was Jesus' answer? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is the first and great commandment. And think about what Jesus is saying here. That the motivation for the Christian life is to be an expression of love to God. Like this is the heartbeat. The essence of Christianity is not duty-driven service, but rather and a heart that has been so overwhelmed with the fact that even though I'm a sinner, God would love me. And in response to that love, I never get over the goodness of God, the grace of God, and the glory of God. Rather, I grow deeper and deeper in love with God. And here's what happens. The more I love God, the more I'm going to proclaim the message that God came to bring. Right? So this is what's going to happen. So if you were to ask me, hey, uh, do you ever mind or feel burdened when someone says, hey, tell me about your kids? And the answer is no. Like if someone wants to talk about my kids, I'll talk all day long. I'll show you uh, pictures and we'll go through. I'll tell you stories. Before it's over with, you're going to be bored and you're like, I'm sorry I asked. And I'm going to keep talking. Why? Because there's not, it's not work for me to talk about my family because I love my family. So the, the Great Commission is advanced and is motivated by the Great Commandment, which is to love God. But 
Jesus says in the great commandment, he says, but there's a second command. And he says it like this. He says, the first command is this, to love the Lord your God, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love. And then he says, and the second is like it, which simply means it's attached to it. They go hand in hand. And he says, it's to love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, on these two commands, the entire law and the prophets hang. So think about what Jesus is saying here. If you love God, you will love people. This is why they're intrinsically attached to one another. They're they're connected to the point of which where you can't say that you you, you love God but hate your neighbor. You can't say that you have affection for God and worship him, but there's no regard for the people that you live around. That loving your neighbor as yourself is going to be tied. Why? Because when you love God, you're going to love what God loves. Well, what does God love? Well, according to John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. So if God loves humanity and we love God, guess what's going to happen? We're going to love humanity. Why? Because humanity is made in the image of God. And why am I saying this? I think it's important that we understand that the mission of God is something that should naturally flow out of a heart that has been shaped by the love of God in Christ that we find in the gospel. That when the gospel captures our heart, it's going to move us into a love for God that then leads us to a love for one another. And I'm convinced that the reason the mission of God is often not lived, lived out through individuals and really not embraced as a body of believers, as a church, is because there's a love issue, there's a heart issue. Because if we're going to love God, if we love God, we're going to love people. And so the question then I want to wrestle with this morning as we jump into Luke chapter 10 is, if my love for God is a response to his love for me and that creates a gospel love in my heart that then is given to my neighbor, what does it mean to love my neighbor as myself? What does it mean for me to love the world around me with a gospel love? This is a question we need to ask. And this is really the essence of how we stay on mission as a church. But in Luke chapter 10, here's what we're going to find. Jesus is going to answer this question. Now, Luke chapter 10, and I'm not going to read the whole passage, but it sounds a lot like Matthew chapter 22. And I believe there are two different instances in the life of Jesus. And Matthew chapter 22 is toward the end of Jesus' life where he is asked the question, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus answers, it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. But in Luke chapter 10, a lawyer comes to Jesus and asks the question, How do I gain life? How do I have eternal life? And Jesus responds to the question, what does the law say? And then this lawyer responds with the same answer that Jesus gives in Matthew 22. To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, all your mind. And then he says, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus' response to this man was, you are right. Do this and you will live. And then this man asks a question. Don't miss the question. He asks this question. Who then is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? If I'm going to love my neighbor as myself, then who is my neighbor? Now, why would the man ask this? Well, the story tells us. The story says, seeking to justify himself, he asked this question. Why is he seeking to justify himself? Because he has not really loved his neighbor. This is a man who put perimeters and limitations and boundaries around his love. That There were some people that were going to receive love. There were some people that were not going to receive love. And he was going to determine whether or not you were worthy of his love or not. And seeking to justify himself, he asked the question, who is my neighbor? Hoping that Jesus would answer in a way that would let him off the hook so that he didn't have to love the people that he didn't want to love. But Jesus shoots his wheels off. And everybody else's wheels off with his answer. And his answer is a story. And it's a story called the Great 
uh, the Good Samaritan. So I want you to grab your Bibles, Luke chapter 10, with that T up. Jesus is going to tell this story to help us understand what it means to love our neighbor as ourselves. What does gospel love truly look like? Look what he says here, Luke chapter 10, verse 30. Jesus replied, he's answering the question. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place, he saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, he came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound him, uh, bound his wounds, uh, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. And then Jesus then turns the question and gives it back to the lawyer. And he says this, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the attorney said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do the same thing. Do likewise. So this story, there's four characters. There's the man beaten, bloodied, broken on the side of the road. And we're assuming, because this is a Jewish audience, that this is a Jewish man. This would have been the assumption for everybody. No one would even question who this man is. Just a Jewish man, certain man. We don't know his name, doesn't give much details, just a Jewish man. And he gets beaten, jumped, robbed, whipped, and he's laying there on the side of the road, left for dead. Then you have three other characters. You have a Levite, a priest, and a Samaritan. Sounds like a start of a bad joke, right? Um, they walk into a bar. And, uh, and no, so uh, we're not live, so I can say that. Um, <laughs> Y'all get the unfiltered Todd today. Uh, so, and so here they are. They're walking down uh, this road. And uh, Jesus is going to do something. He's going to contrast the responses of these three men and show the difference. So what we see is, is the first man, the priest comes along. He sees the man who's broken, he's beaten, he's dead, left for down the side of the road. He looks at him and he turns and keeps on walking. The Levite comes and does the very same thing. Both of these men see the man broken and in need. And rather than going to him and helping him and caring for him, they, they were indifferent. They dismissed this man and they just went on like they had never seen him. Just ignored what was happening right in front of us. But the Samaritan is different. The Samaritan, it says, has compassion on the man. He stops and he goes to the man and he expresses love by caring for and meeting the needs of the man and even giving of his own money, resources, and, 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 and time to make sure that this man is cared for. His response is the complete opposite of what we see in the Levite and the priest. Now, the question you need to ask yourself anytime you're reading the, the stories of Jesus, when Jesus is telling a parable or a story, this is just kind of a Bible study tip for you, is that you need to ask yourself the question, why is Jesus using the characters he's using? And I believe there's a very specific reason Jesus is using the characters he's using. He talks about the Levite, he talks about the priest, and then the third man, the hero of the story, is the Samaritan. Why in the world, we need to ask, would Jesus identify the ethnicity of this man? Why would he identify this man as a Samaritan? And here is the reason. Historically speaking, the Samaritans and the Jews had as much racial tension as any two people groups in the history of humanity. 
They despised one another. They hated one another. They had no feelings of goodwill toward one another. Samaritans hated Jews. Jews hated Samaritans. And for years, it was bigotry, racism, hatred, hostility, uh, separated because they are two people groups that do not go together. And anytime they're together, there's a clash. There's, there's no reason they should have any dealings with one another. This type of hate, hatred for decade upon decade upon decade. And Jesus, I believe, uses the contrast of the Samaritan, and then he does something in the story. He makes the Samaritan in front of a Jewish audience the good guy. Like when Jesus says, hey, and a priest came by, and he kept on walking, the priest probably in the room would have been like this, and then the Levites, you know, if they were around, they probably would have been like, hey, he's talking about us. And then when they said Samaritan, most people in the audience would have said, yeah, and I bet he takes the rest of the guy's money. But then all of a sudden, Jesus flips it on his head, and that Samaritan becomes the hero. Everyone would have been frustrated with Jesus in this moment. Because how could you make a, a, a guy like the Samaritan the hero? Here's why. Jesus wants us to understand that gospel love transcends even the deepest bitterness, hatred, racism, or animosity that we might give or have between us and another human. That the love of the gospel not only transcends racism, and, and hatred and hostility, but it transforms the heart so that we no longer see people and we go, you know, these things in my heart, the things that I feel are going to keep me from them. Now we just see humanity made in the image of God and we care for them with genuine, real, authentic love. This is the point Jesus is making. That this Samaritan represents the fact that the power of the gospel is greater than any hostility that we might feel toward another individual, regardless of who they are. Listen to what one commentary said about it. This this gentleman writes, he said, He, Jesus, radically redefines neighbor and practically demonstrates what it looks like to love God and neighbor. The lawyer never in his wildest dreams thought that God would define his neighbor as a hurting man in a rough part of town uh, from a different ethnic group who needed compassion. Jesus blows everybody's mind in this moment. So here's the point. Jesus wants us to understand that to truly love our neighbor as ourselves demands that our love has no limitation. It stretches beyond race, tradition, experiences, and differences. This is what it means, listen to me, to love our neighbor with a gospel love. And if there's anything that we need right now in our culture, in our country, in our world, it is gospel love. So I want to do something. I want to get you to write down four words. You say, what is gospel love? How do we summarize this gospel love that we see in this story? Let me give you four words, I believe, that summarize gospel love. Gospel love in four words. If you're taking notes, write this down. If you want to write it in the margin of your Bible, it's just four words. The first word is this. It's the word compassion. Compassion. Look what it says in verse 33. But the Samaritan, this is the difference between the Samaritan, the Levite, and the priest. As he journeyed, he came to where he was, just like the Levite, just like the priest. And when he saw him, just like the Levite and just like the priest... Something happened in his heart. He had compassion. And this is the difference. He had compassion. The, 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 man, the Samaritan sees the man and he immediately feels compassion in his heart. This word compassion is a powerful word. And it's a word that we so desperately need to have a part of our life as we see humanity and walk in the brokenness of this world. The word compassion literally means to feel deeply the wounds or the hurts or the pain of someone else. It is a deep affection. Literally, it, it means to be squeezed in the inward parts. So, so if, you, if you ever heard someone say, if they see something and say, man, that was gut-wrenching. 
This is the idea. It's a strong word, and the Latin word for uh, 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 compassion is two words when you put together. literally means to suffer with. To suffer. It's to feel in the depths of your soul, the best of your ability, what somebody else is feeling. This is the word compassion. And this is the word used to describe what the Samaritan felt about the man broken on the side of the road. Now, the word compassion is, a, is not only just a powerful word, it's a very biblical word. If you read the Old Testament, what you'll find the Hebrew equivalent to the same Greek word that we find here in Luke chapter 10. You'll see it over and over and over again. This word compassion or merciful in reference to the way that God feels about the brokenness of humanity. Like God is defined as a God who is compassionate. I can't read all of the scriptures. Yesterday I spent a lot of time just kind of reading through different verses of where God is seen as compassionate to help me get a fuller understanding of what the Samaritan was feeling. But let me give you one example. Jonah, you may know the story of Jonah. Actually, the story of Jonah is one of my favorite stories. In fact, we're putting together a series on the book of Jonah that we'll be doing most likely sometime in the fall. But the book of Jonah is the story about this prophet of God named Jonah who was sent to the Ninevites. The Ninevites were the sworn enemy of God. They were the, it's the capital city of the Assyrian government, which is the, the world power that's ready to dominate Israel at any moment. And you've got this prophet who was sent to not only the enemy of Israel, but uh, the Ninevites were considered to be the meanest, nastiest, evil people on the planet. And there was a lot of, again, racial hostility between Israelites and the Ninevites. So God gives... Jonah, this command, you're going to go to the Ninevites. And Jonah, what does he do? He doesn't go. He goes the opposite way. He's going to go to Tarsus. He gets on a boat. The storm comes. They cast him out. Big fish eats him. Then pukes him up on the shoreline. And then now he's there and he goes. He's really not had a change of heart. He's just is like, I'm going to disobey because it's more worth it than being in the belly of a fish. So he goes and he preaches the most God-awful sermon ever preached in humanity. Like literally, it's one sentence. God's going to kill all of y'all. That's kind of the, the, the Texas version of Jonah. Y'all have heard of turn or burn sermons? His was just burn. It was not turn. He did not do the Billy Graham, I'm going to count to three and everyone come forward. It was just like God's going to kill all of y'all. And something happens. The Spirit of God fell on the Ninevites. Their hearts were broken over their sin. They confessed their sin. They repent of their sin. And then God does the unimaginable. He forgives even the Ninevites. He extends grace and mercy and compassion to these people, and revival breaks out. And you would think Jonah would be the happiest pastor on the world, but he's even more mad than he was when God called him. And the question a lot of people wrestle with is, why did, why did Jonah disobey? Why did he not go? Well, some people will say, well, I think it's because he was scared of the Ninevites. They were evil people. I don't think that's the reason. Why do I not think it's the reason? Because Jonah tells us why he didn't go. He tells us he didn't go. Because he knew that if he preached and they repented, God would forgive because that is who God is. Now listen to what Jonah says about God in Jonah chapter 4, verse 2. He says, for I knew. In other words, earlier on he goes, this is why I went to Tarshish rather than Nineveh. For I knew that you were a, listen to this, gracious God and merciful. That word merciful in the Hebrew language is the Hebrew equivalent to the Greek word used in Luke chapter 10 when it says the Samaritan felt compassion. In other words, he says, I knew it. This is why I didn't want to go. Because I knew that even the Ninevites, because God, your character is that of grace and mercy and compassion. And you were slow to anger. And I knew if I went and they repented, you would forgive them. And that's why I didn't want to go. Because God, you are too compassionate. That even the evil, vile enemies of your people would be forgiven if they would repent. That's the compassion of God.
In the New Testament, this same word used for the Samaritan is used to refer to Jesus on a number of occasions. I can't tell you all of them, but I'll give you three. There was a story about a time where Jesus was moving through a city with his disciples, and there was a procession that came in front of Jesus, and it was a funeral procession. And as he watched, he began to see the people grieving. Then there was one woman that caught his attention. It was the mother of the one who was dead and recognized very quickly that this was this woman's only son. She's grieving. She's broken. The loss of her only son. And it says that Jesus moved with compassion, went over and touched the dead body and made him alive and said, go back to your mother. Another story, Jesus was going through the village and there were two men They were blind pleading for mercy, wanting their conditions to change. They were broken. The crowds were saying, man, leave Jesus alone. He has nothing to do with you. He is a busy man. And Jesus says, no, 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 bring him to me. And Jesus gives both of these men their eyesight. It says, before they did it, Jesus moved with compassion, made them whole. Another story, Jesus is coming into the city and he sees the masses and crowds of people who were just moving about trying to jump through all the religious hurdles of the day. He sees the oppression of the Gentiles uh, uh, over the Israelites and seeing all the people, how they were just broken and lost. And it says that Jesus had compassion for them because they were lost and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. This is how God feels about humanity. He is compassionate. Jesus felt the gut-wrenching sorrow of the brokenness and stepped into it. Listen, here is the reality. You say, what is compassion? Why is this essential for us? Because listen, compassion is simply this. Compassion is simply responding to the brokenness of humanity just like Jesus. That's what compassion is. Let me give you a definition of compassion. I got this from Compassion International website, the ministry we are partnered with. Here's what they say. Compassion is sometimes the fatal capacity for feeling what it is like to live inside somebody else's skin. It is the knowledge that there can never really be any peace and joy for me until there is peace and joy finally for them. This is compassion. It is to suffer with. And this is what we so desperately need in our world today. That's Gospel word number one. Here's number two. Proximity. You have compassion, then you have proximity. Look what happens in the story, verse 34. And he, the Samaritan, went to him and bound up his wounds and pouring on oil and wine. Now follow what's happening here. He moved to action and he went to the man. He entered the suffering of the one who was broken. This Samaritan got his hands dirty. He served this man and he bound his wounds. He, he drew near. He leaned into the brokenness. He didn't run away from it. And this is what genuine compassion does. Genuine compassion is more than just feeling sorry for someone. You see, feeling sorry for someone is a moment of sadness that is short-lived and at best will lead you to passivity and at worst will lead you to indifference. But having compassion for someone will move you to proximity. 
I want you to think about for a moment. Put your mind in the story. Imagine you were the man beaten and broken, left for dead on the side of the road, and you were, you were there, and you know, listen, you're going to die here. The, the, the sun is beating down on you, and you are parched, and you know you're bleeding, and you're, you're just so desperate. Like, I'm here all alone in a dangerous highway, and knowing that there is no hope in sight, and then there's someone coming along. It looks like a, like a priest. A priest is coming. Maybe this priest will help me, and the priest just looks at him, and he sees as the priest just continues to walk by, and then a Levite comes, and we don't know how many passerbyers came that day, but we know that this man is here and he's broken. Think about the desperation, the hopelessness after one, after the other person continues just to walk by without coming to his aid. Maybe he's just in a moment thinking, I'm going to die. All hope is gone. Then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the hand of a Samaritan on his shoulder kneeling down, lifting his face and saying, you're not alone. Pulling out his oil and wine and beginning to wash the wounds and bandage the wounds and says, I'm not going anywhere. I'm in this with you. Listen, what we need more than anything from the church of Jesus Christ is not to sit in the safety and security and the comfort of our worship centers and our living rooms or in our small groups and just pray about the brokenness of the world around us. Listen, we must be moved with compassion to the extent of which we will get off of our donkeys and we will get after the broken. We will draw near to the hurting. And we will get our hands dirty and meet the needs of those around us. I was thinking about an illustration of what could I share with you to help paint the picture. And I couldn't find a better illustration than what I find in the Bible, which is always a great place to find illustrations, right? You remember the story of Jesus healing the man with leprosy? So this, 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 this issue of leprosy was, I mean, it was worse than the coronavirus. Like the social distancing is nothing compared to what a leper went through. Disassociated from the community, kicked out. You had a little uh, area, no human touch whatsoever. I mean, to get the diagnosis that you were going to be a leper was immediately not just to say, man, my, my body is going to go through unbelievable pain, but you knew in your own soul that it was a death warrant. Cut off from society. No more human affection, touch, emotion, conversation. Now you were going to be all alone the rest of your life as you slowly died. See, the great wounds of a leper was more than just the marks on their skin. It was the brokenness of a heart who desperately wanted to connect with somebody. You remember how Jesus healed the man? He touched him. Now here's, a, here's just a question. You can answer this. Say yes or no. Could Jesus have healed the leper with just his thoughts? What's the answer? Could Jesus have healed the leper with just his words? So why did he touch him? Proximity. Gospel love draws near to the broken. You see, Jesus was doing more than just healing his skin. He was healing his heart. He wraps his arms around him, puts his hand on him for the first time maybe in how long this man has had someone look at him as a person and touch him and speak into his life. See, there was much more happening than just physical healing. There was emotional uh, and spiritual healing happening in this man's heart. And this is the way in which Christ has called us to live, to draw near to the broken, enter into it with those who are 
hurting. Here's gospel word number four or three, inconvenience. We have compassion, proximity, and inconvenience. Some of you all, all morning long as I've said this, people kind of went, huh? I didn't see that one coming. But this is probably the most pivotal of all of them. Look what he says here in the passage, verse 34. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and then brought him to an inn and took care of him. Now, follow this. Don't miss this. He's traveling. This little stretch of road that this man was on from Jerusalem to Jericho was about a 17-mile journey, very difficult terrain, thieves and robbers everywhere. We already see one man's gotten beaten up. So think about this. This man was willing to stop in a dangerous part of town to care for someone in need, inconvenience. And if he was traveling from Jericho to Jerusalem or Jerusalem to Jericho, here's the question we need to ask. Was he going somewhere? Well, certainly he was. Who would take that stretch of road if he didn't have something to go, some place to go, something to do, some person to see? So think about this. He's traveling on his way, and even though he has an agenda and a schedule and a place to be, when he sees a man in need, he stops. And he sets aside his agenda to care for someone who desperately needed him in the moment. That's inconvenience. Not only this, it says that he gets off of his own animal. This is a hard terrain, hard to travel. And rather than riding and letting the man just lay there, what does he do? He puts the man on his own beast and then walks beside him and finishes the journey in the most difficult possible way imaginable. And then he gets to the end. He cares for him there and says, by the way, I'm going to come back tomorrow to check on him. His entire life has been disrupted. But this is what gospel love does. Gospel love does not see the brokenness and then try to fit it into our schedule. Gospel love says this, I see the brokenness and I'm going to have compassion in my heart and I'm going to move in proximity and I'm going to be willing to be inconvenienced to alter my life in order to do something about what's in front of me. And this is what we see in the story very clearly. Understand this morning, don't miss this. The mission of God is not a convenient mission. It demands interruptions. It demands discomfort. It demands that we take risk. It demands inconveniences. If we say that we want the world to know Jesus but are unwilling to set aside our agendas and our schedule, if we are unwilling to step into discomfort, then how can we say we truly love the world? New Beginnings Baptist Church, I want you to hear me say this. We will not advance the gospel to this world without being willing to lay aside our preferences, our comforts, our conveniences, and our agenda. And listen, we will not reach this city, much less this world, without the gospel love manifesting itself and a willingness to welcome the inconveniences of the broken into our life. Far too many of us, we make far too many excuses for the reason why we don't share the gospel or care for the hurting or spend time in the bro with the broken. We make so many excuses of why we can't do it. And let me just tell you, this: it all comes down to this, is do we love the world enough to be inconvenienced by their pain in order to bring healing into their life? That's the question we got to ask. Which leads me... To number four, the fourth word is sacrifice. Sacrifice is very clear, compassion, proximity, inconvenience, 
and sacrifice. Look at what he says here in verse 35. This is the final parts of the story. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him. And listen to this next phrase. And whatever you spend, I will repay when I come back. This is a stranger. I mean, this is a, he doesn't know this guy. This is just some guy who was beaten up and bloodied laying on the side of the road. He doesn't even know him. He's a stranger. And worse than that, he's a stranger, a part of the ethnic group that there's been hostility with for decade upon decade. And yet, listen to what he does here. In essence, he writes a blank check and says, I don't care what it costs. I just want this man well. Doesn't even know know him. Not a part of his people group. I don't care what the cost. I'm willing to make the sacrifice. Listen, gospel love demands sacrifice. We've got to be willing to sacrifice. Advancing the mission of God is costly and requires personal loss at times. I have to be willing to offer my time, my resource, my personal freedom, my money, and even my very life for the sake of the gospel. This is the call of Jesus on all of our lives. To say that we love our neighbor but are unwilling to give of ourselves to meet the needs of those around us is to not understand what it means to love our neighbor. One of the stories that I love is, and I've shared this before on a number of occasions, I think, is uh, the story of Jim, Jim Elliott, missionary, martyr, went to a people group, had a burden, but this tribe that he went to was known for their hostility and were known for their barbaric practices of cannibalism. And he and his missionary friends decided they were going to go and move there with their families, but they went to kind of touch base first and Upon their first visit, without even making a single convert, every single one of these men were murdered and cannibalized. And he sacrificed. And it's an amazing story, but what's more amazing is that his wife, Elizabeth Elliot, who's a hero in the faith of mine, she and the other wives were so burdened about the brokenness of this people group who murdered their husbands that she willfully, with the other wives, moved into the very tribe that murdered their husband, eventually leading them to Christ. And one of the men who led the ways in killing her husband, Jim Elliott, came to know the Lord, and later on, her children would call him grandfather. That's gospel love. Here's what Elizabeth Elliott says about love. She says this, It is impossible to love deeply without sacrifice. It is impossible to love deeply without sacrifice. If we are going to love the world deeply, it demands sacrifice. And listen, this, listen, as we, as the people of God, we walk in this, we walk in this compassion, proximity, inconvenience, and sacrifice. Listen, we'll change the world. Like, we'll change the world. Because who lives like that? This is what Christ has called us to do. It's what he has called us to be. A love for God that leads to a love for man that overflows so that we would see the world know that God cares. How will they know that God cares? Because we care. 
We say all this all the time. Is there a social gospel and there's a gospel? No, there's just the gospel. And the gospel manifests itself in society and the way in which we live our lives. You say, we share the gospel or do we show the gospel? Yes. But listen to me. The gospel we share with the world becomes visible when we actively care for the world. This is what Christ wants us to do. And I'm going to say some things, this application here, that are very uncomfortable. And oftentimes they go unsaid, but I can't be the one that goes and continues life without saying it. I I am, no other words other than saying I, I feel brokenness in my heart over what we're seeing in our nation. And, and not just what we've seen the last four or five days, but what we've seen for decade upon decade upon decade. I am sick over the hurt and the brokenness that sin has caused in this world. And Christi- Christians, listen, we cannot idly sit back and watch it happen. And, and, and it starts with, with honest conversation. It starts with us being open to the fact that maybe there's some things that we're doing and we're attitudes that we have in our own hearts that have to change. We, we are in a, a, a state of crisis, but it's not a new state of crisis. It's just more of a visible state of crisis. The racial divide cannot be denied, but what also cannot be denied, I'm gonna, this is where I, I didn't make any, I'm not making any friends today, just so you know. But the good news for you is my identity is found in Jesus and I didn't come here to make friends. But I will say this, I've been your shepherd for 10 years now. But if I'm a shepherd worth following, it means I've got to say stuff that you don't want to hear. That need to be said. Injustice in our nation is real. The system we're operating in, it's not work. It's broken. And we can say that we're a free nation. We can say that we're a nation that has equality. But listen, when the justice system does not reflect, and and again, I'm not saying every part of our nation, but the majority of our nation is broken. Freedom for all and equality for all will never be a realization. And far too Often, white evangelicals specifically, and because I, I, I am one, we look at the symptoms but not the root. We get distracted with the fact that there are communities that are having riots and cities that are having this type of incivility in them. And listen, while I am opposed to the burning down of any building, Absolutely sinful response. And the destruction of cities. But let me say this. If our heart is more outraged over a building that's being burned down more than we are over a man whose life was choked out of his body, God help us. 
And listen, I've said this in all of the services, and I'm going to continue to say it. I know there are some in our church that just want me to shut up, preach the gospel, and don't talk with issues that might be divisive or a social matter or have a political bent to them. And here's my response to that resistance to what I'm going to say or I'm saying. If the gospel that you hold on to does not directly affect the way that you see the injustices in our society and does not move you with compassion to make a change, then you are either holding the gospel too loosely or what you're holding is not the gospel at all. Followers of Jesus are demanded in God's word to speak against injustice. What we've seen with George Floyd is something that's more common than needs to be seen in our nation. And I will say this, I, in this church, supports our law enforcement officers. And I believe that our nation, our city, is gifted with a lot of really great officers. But unfortunately, our officers have to work in a system that is broken And when it's broken, the things like we've seen in Minneapolis surface. And there's got to be a point in my life where we say what needs to be said so that the changes that need to be made made can be made. Period. We hear the banter over and over and over again, law and order, law and order. Let me help you this morning. Listen, we're missing a key component to the equation. The answer is not law and order. It's law, order, and justice. There's three spokes to that wheel that cause a society to flourish. And it's not law and order alone. It is law, order, and justice. And when you pull justice out and only look for law and order, here's what you have, oppression and tyranny. Let's ask the Nazis how that worked out. Let's ask, let's ask the Jews how that worked back in the 1940s. Law and order minus justice is oppression. So rather than crying for law and order, what if we cried for justice? Because if you get justice, you'll get law and order. There needs to be reform in the system. And you say this is far too political and it's too divisive. No, 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 listen, what's divisive? What's divisive is the insensitivity and the lack of justice. That's divisive. Speaking about it is just acknowledging the elephant in the room and saying if we ever want to take care of the elephant, you've got to acknowledge that it's there. What we're seeing with all of the uproar in our nation, which much of which is wrong, Unfortunately, the, the, those who are peaceful in their approach to this situation with George Floyd, they're not getting put on the news because it doesn't sell newspapers. And what will happen is we're not careful. Okay, I'm going to talk to you, right? Be honest. What will happen if we're not careful, if our viewpoint is limited to the eight people that are in our circle and whatever news outlet we watch, what will happen is, is that the, the cough that we're seeing in culture, which is what we're seeing the last 24, 48 hours, will distract us from dealing with the root problem. And that's what's happened over and over and over again. We justify and we explain away, but we never really get to the root 
problem. And I'm as a brother in Christ. And I know today five services saying this thing, that there are going to be some that leave this church today and never come back. And listen, I'm willing. I'm willing to lose my job if it means loving my neighbor. And I want our church to be a church that brings hope, that brings reconciliation. It's not minorities against police officers. It's a justice system issue. And I believe if we fix that, we'll, we'll reconcile the relationships. But this is where it needs to start. Think about the story, the Good Samaritan. Think about it. He had compassion on him. He saw him. He didn't see a Jewish man. He saw a man. He saw a man broken, bloody, beaten on the side of the road, left for dead. He didn't ask what the backstory was. What did he do to deserve it? What led up to this? It was irrelevant. Why? Because there's a man broken, bloody, beaten on the side of the road. All that mattered is that the Imago day has been broken, and therefore we're going to respond with proximity and inconvenience and sacrifice. Rather than asking the question, what he did, what if we ask the question, what can I do? That will change the world. And this is what is needed to happen from you and I walking in gospel love compassion proximity inconvenience and sacrifice using our authority our position our power to build relationships lean in get to know somebody's story here's what I've learned proximity gives me a lot of knowledge that I desperately need. And this is where a lot of us, we say, okay, I don't see that there's a problem. I don't see that there's a problem in the justice system. Maybe it's because you've never been on the other side of it. And the only way you can understand it is to get to know someone who's been on the other side of it. And rather than giving your answers, you just listen. Proximity. And then be inconvenience to change whatever it is you're learning from the relationship. Change behavior. Stand and be an advocate. Shoulder to shoulder with those who are trying to make a difference in the world. And then make whatever sacrifices are needed to bring about reconciliation. We need change. I am, I am, I am so grateful. I am so grateful for our nation. But I am also so broken in the condition we are in. And listen, if the church of Jesus Christ does not move into action. Listen, there's never going to be change. And here's why. You know why? Here's the thing. Don't forget this. This is the best part of the sermon. When we read the story of the Good Samaritan, we make a mistake. Here's the mistake we make. We ask ourselves the question, am I the Levite? Am I the priest? Am I Samaritan? Which one am I? Wrong question. You know why? Because before you can be the good Samaritan, you got to recognize who you really are in the story. And you're not the Samaritan, you're not the priest, you're not the Levite. You're the broken, bloodied man left for dead with no hope. But Jesus is the great Samaritan who comes on the scene. 
who rather than seeing the brokenness of humanity, he has compassion and he put on flesh proximity and he came near to us. He lived like us and Jesus was in convenience with the struggle and the suffering of mankind, taking upon himself the sin of the world so that he might experience and express the fourth word, which is sacrifice, dying for us on the cross so that the penalty of our sin might be paid. Listen, we will never become the good Samaritan until we first embrace the good Samaritan. This is where it begins. Because when you experience that, you recognize that's where Jesus found me. Now all of a sudden it changes your worldview of how you see everyone else. This is the hope of the gospel. Here's my prayer. Is that we would walk in this. We would not move out of a Sunday service with just saying, man, that moved me, but rather asking Jesus to change us in light of the gospel of Jesus. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. I'm going to give you three prayer requests. Three prayer requests. The first is this. I'm going to ask you to pray for peace, for peace in our nation. Right now, where you are, just peace in our nation. We need peace. Just beg God for it. Now I'm going to ask you to pray for not just peace, but justice. Pray for justice. The justice system is fractured and it is broken and it needs Jesus and the justice that's found in him to bring healing and change. Let's pray for that. And finally, ask God to use you. Whatever influence whatever position, ask, ask God, God, use me to be the difference maker. And that starts maybe with confessing, God, if, there, if there's a resistance in my heart to seeing and feeling what others see and feel, then God, show me, show me. The, the, the scripture says, search me, O God, know my heart, try me and know my ever anxious thoughts, see if there's any wicked way in me. So maybe it starts with you saying, God, I, I want you to rise to the surface, anything in me that would keep you from using me to bring about change. And then God, I want you to use me. I'm going to pray for us. But if you've never trusted the good Samaritan that is Jesus, then today, maybe that's the day for you. It's not about you giving the four words. It's about you receiving the four words. Father, I love you. I thank you for your word. I thank you that we can stand on it. We can be confident in it. And God, that it does the work that it needs to do. And God, I pray that we would walk in love, on mission, and that specifically the peace and the justice and the change that needs to happen in our nation for us to be unified, God, would happen. Use us in the process. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said,